Welcome to Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. Hi, I'm Wanda Acosta. Hi, I'm Karen Song. This podcast series is an extension of our film's mission to affirm and extol the courage, vision, strength, and joy in our LGBTQ community through the preservation and sharing of our personal stories and the collective histories we live through and change. For this Sundays at Cafe Tabac podcast episode, we are so pleased to feature award-winning filmmaker Sam Fader as he shares his own personal coming out story and discusses the importance of trans visibility. His recent documentary, Disclosure, world premiered at Sundance 2020 to much acclaim and is currently streaming on Netflix. This groundbreaking film takes an unprecedented, eye-opening look at transgender depictions in film and television and is considered essential viewing. It will undoubtedly play an important role for generations to come. Disclosure is one of our favorite films of the year, and we strongly recommend you watch it today. And here we have, in his own words, the brilliant Sam Fader. When I hear coming out, I think about queerness. You know, that's definitely what's resonated with me for the majority of my life, right? Coming out means coming out as queer. But then again, when you're queer and trans and you don't even know that trans is an option, um, coming out does become really complicated, right? Because, you know, I dated people of all genders. So early on, I knew there was something queer, but I also didn't quite understand, right? How does that fit in, right? So seemingly... I was taking up a space of like a lesbian or a dyke, but that felt really alienating and I didn't know why, you know, and I did what a lot of trans guys do who are in sort of dyke space where you're like, oh my God, am I just like the ultimate misogynist? Is this what this is? Like, am I just rejecting women? And I, you know, like you question that and you're like, I'm a feminist. I don't understand why, why don't those words land with me? You know, and it's also because of a generation where you know, there was so much more emphasis on the language of dyke, you know, and there was critique of the word lesbian and people were taking that personally. Like, so is this internalized misogyny? And that we were asking ourselves and that a lot of lesbians were accusing us of. My, actually, my first film explores that, um, explores like the resistance towards trans guys um, within dyke space in the early 2000s in New York. Anyway, so that definitely made it complicated. You know, I was excited to kind of understand my queerness but still, it still kind of felt like bumper cars when I was in a certain like queer female space, right? Okay, so that's kind of what coming out means to me, the complication around it from my personal experience. So I kind of say I was like a dyke for six months and then I just kind of didn't know what I was. Right? So I came out, I was excited and I was like, it doesn't quite fit right. But also what was complicated at that time was like the dykes that I was like dating and hanging out with were kind of transphobic, right? Because that was like the early conversations where there was a lot of resistance towards trans people. People didn't know what they didn't know and people were very vocal about it. So that again was like, I don't understand how I fit into this world. When I did come out as queer, the summer I turned 17 and I had before that been like very close to my like gay teachers in high school, you know, just really was fond of them and um, and they kind of took me under their wing, but I just thought they were cool. And I had this high school teacher, her name was Kathy Emery. She taught history and she taught us Howard Zinn and this is in the nineties. And she actually wrote the introduction to the people's history. Like, so she's very, very, very cool. But she had been teaching at my school. It's a high school, it's a K through 12 at Brooklyn school. And I remember in like second or third grade, standing in the lobby and seeing her walk into the school and she was six feet tall 
and she had like a motorcycle helmet on her arm and a leather jacket. You know, this is like the late 80s in New York and she lived in the Lower East Side, you know. And I just remember being like, I don't know what is happening, but I just thought she was amazing. And on uh, coming out day, um, she, we had assembly and she would always stand up in front of the whole school and she would come out as a lesbian and a Democrat. Like that was always her coming out story. <laughs> so that was Kathy Emery who for so many other reasons, like she just left a huge mark on my life and has influenced me a lot. She's a brilliant historian now in San Francisco. But then the summer I turned 17, um, I was in this like, you know, summer program doing photography and I met this woman and she was delightful and gorgeous and we were just friends, but I definitely knew I had a crush on her. It was very clear to me. I understood these feelings that were happening and like at some point she like pierced my ears. So like, you know, there could be some homo reading into that, you know, she like iced it first. <laughs> And then, you know, push the needle in, like, so. <laughs> um, and I was really excited about her. And my mom came to visit, you know, this was like a summer, you know, whole summer thing. She came up one weekend for dinner. And I was close to my mom at the time. And I told her, because it just was kind of like conversation. And my mom didn't really seem phased by it. She had gay friends. And, um, and she also had been like, she knew all the boys I dated, right? And like, the, like we would all watch movies together and I would like cuddle with my boyfriend. So like my sexuality and my dating life was pretty open with my mother. So no big deal, right? But then about a year later, I had a girlfriend and I fell very much in love. And again, I wanted to tell my mom, I was excited. And this is the part where I'm like, it's so sad to share these stories. Um, and then when my mom met this woman, her name was Kara, my mom literally curled up in the fetal position on her bed, cried, and said, no one will love you as much as I do. <laughs> I was like, wow, where's Freud? Like, can Freud just like talk to me about this? So that was really confusing. That was really hard. <laughs> and at that time, I, I, I was like, okay, you're my mom, fine. I, I, I get it, I don't, this is weird. But I internalized it so deeply, I really did, and I felt, so ashamed like that's where i went with it i felt ashamed and my mom was like i don't want to see you holding her hand don't be affectionate in front of me it was like it was you know she took it as an act against her right that was the sort of narrative so i felt really ashamed and then i i, I think i just really pulled away after that and years later i told her that that was weird <laughs> i don't think she really got why it was weird <laughs> But she was just like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, just like, so nonchalant. A few years later, I was in the car with my dad and his wife at the time. They were in the front of the car, I was in the back. And at one point, my dad, I don't know how the conversation went there, but you know, he was looking in the rear view mirror and I'm looking at him that he often did that when he was driving, so we'd be talking. And um, he said, you know, have you ever been in love? And I was like, yeah, because he also met Kara, my first girlfriend. And I was like, well, remember you met Kara? And he was like, oh yeah, I really like Carol. I was like, yeah, I was in love with her. And it got really quiet. And his wife looked at him and said, oh, maybe Sammy fell in love with a woman because she has such a bad relationship with you. <laughs> and so then I kind of sat back in the car and then my dad was like, gay people don't really stay together very long. 
Meanwhile, he's in the car with his third wife. So these are my coming out stories. Um, and so, I mean, I was being pathologized, right? Left and right. Which, you know, it just sucks because you're so excited to discover this about yourself and feelings and sex and the world. And But one funny story did kind of come out of it. Um, my grandfather was really intent on setting me up with someone. And by this time, I think I was like 25 or 26. And I had started coming out when I was 17. So this is many years into it, but hadn't told him. It's just one of those things, right? But he wanted to set me up with a Jewish lawyer named Jared in Manhattan. And he called me one night. And of course, I was home making dinner with my girlfriend at the time. And, you know, I remember cooking and my girlfriend was like off to the side. And not that I'm a cook. I just happened to be cooking. And um, my grandfather was like, Sam, which is how he talks. Sam. Uh, yeah. Um, why haven't you called Jared? Um, I don't know. I called him Petey. I was like, I don't know, Petey. I, I'm just busy. He's like, well, listen, Sam, your mom told me. I was like, you know, I just kind of was silent. She told me you're gay. And I was like, okay. And, and then he was like, why didn't you tell me? Do you think I was going to kill myself? I was like, uh, um, I, I just kind of didn't. And he was like, okay, bye. And that was it. <laughs> um, those are my stories of coming out as queer. And so by the time I was figuring out trans stuff, I was not going to share. <laughs> I had no desire. But I did attempt with the pronouns was kind of my first step with sharing. But meanwhile, I'd been making films about trans people, right? Um, since, I don't know, my late 20s. I'd been dating trans people since my late 20s. Um, but I didn't sort of medically or publicly transition until my mid 30s, right? So there's a big chunk of time where my friends all knew <laughs> and they would ask me and I'd always be like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And, but my family, I, for whatever reason, they should have known or at least kind of questioned it, but didn't. So at one point I started explaining to my parents, I'm going to be like, please try these pronouns out. My dad completely ignored it. My stepmother was exasperated. Like it was so hard for her. She kept begging me to like pick another pronoun. <laughs> she just was like, <laughs> it was just so hard for her. <laughs> and then my mom struggled, but she tried. She did. And she still, she still struggles, but she tries. And, and, you know, there's, you know, you pick and choose your battles and, and, you know, kind of, that's kind of one I just kind of let roll off. Um, but with surgery, that's when things got complicated. And <laughs> she literally said, when I like, was like, okay, I just want you to know I'm, I have surgery scheduled. I'm going to go do this. And she was like, hmm, how does that affect me? And I just was like, um, it, it doesn't. And then her next question was, do you want me to go to PFLAG meetings? <laughs> and I was just like, you know, do whatever you want. Like, that's fine. <laughs> um, and then her follow-up was, she got a little upset with me and offended and was like, well, you've never even told me your journey. What's your journey? And I was like, wow, you've seen too many documentaries. I have no journey. I, I, it's like a slow drip of coffee. You've known me my whole life. And I was like, ma, like, come on. And, and then that kind of speaks to like this onus of the journey that's on the trans person to like walk the people through their lives. And that's where it gets so reductive. You know, that's where I think harm feels a little uh, dramatic, but I think it's really um, a disservice right, to reduce it to a journey, right? Because then you're picking certain parts and you're perpetuating specific mythologies, you know, and that's kind of my problem with the sort of 101 trans transition stories that we see. 
Um, you know, there's not a neat little package to hand over. So I kind of feel like at that point in my life, I just felt, I mean, I guess I was old enough too to kind of have the self-awareness of you get to be in my life or you don't, and you love me or you don't. And if you don't accept who I am, then, then we're done. You know, and I was, I was really at peace with that. And my dad and I haven't talked. We don't talk anymore. Um, there was a, a moment when I was trying really hard to bring him in and, and have him be part of the journey. So I was like, come to surgery with me. Like, and um, he came into the waiting room when I was having a consultation and made fun of other people in the waiting room. And and then like the night before my surgery got mad at me because I didn't want to go out to dinner with him and his friends. We had a really bad relationship, a very complicated relationship my whole life. And I think this was like my final attempt to bring him in and have him understand me and do these things that were so compromising. Like that was not the best thing for my health to bring my father along to my surgery, but I did it for him. So my parents named me Sam, right? Um, but birth certificate is Samantha but never in my life did they call me that. It was always Sam or Sammy, always. And after I told my dad that I was gonna have surgery, suddenly I was Samantha. It was the weirdest thing. He would write me letters or started like on the mail, would write Samantha. And he told me he missed his beautiful daughter with long curly hair. And I told, I told my brother that, and my brother was just like, you cut your hair 25 years ago. Like, what is going on? Um, and after that, we actually, we, we stopped speaking. It was so common when I was a teenager that the acceptable reaction to coming out as queer was, oh, we're worried about how the world's going to treat you, right? If you had, you know, sort of supportive parents, that seemed like very acceptable. And now that's the acceptable reaction <laughs> to coming out as trans, right? Everyone puts their own phobias onto the world at large. And then also just the idea of coming out, it's like, what is it? We're coming out to ourselves, we're coming out to our friends, we come out to our families, and then to strangers, to colleagues. And sometimes we need to be strategic or hypervigilant about it, right? Either to be seen or not to be seen. Like, is it for a romantic interest? Is it for a job? So over the years, I would talk to my friends about it and, you know, you know talking like, what about this? What about that? And I remember being at a party in Pride a few years before I started testosterone. I was talking to two of my friends who were queer uh, women. And I was like, you know, I think I want to go on testosterone. What do you think? <laughs> and one of them was like, well, you're not going to be as good looking. <laughs> I was like, shit. <laughs> and years later, I reminded her of that. And she was like, send me all your therapy bills. She's like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> So, of course, it hurt at the time, and I also understood where it was coming from for her, and I really appreciated her response years later. So my takeaway of all that is it's just no one's business. Like, you love me or you don't, um, and that's that. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I take a long time to do things. And I do a lot of research. I you know, investigate it from every angle. It takes me a long time to make a decision, but then once I make it, it's done. I mean, I've been making films about trans lives since 2003, and I really believed um, in visibility, right? I really thought that it was so, so important, and I still do. But what happened was in 2014, when Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time magazine, 
She's on the cover. She's the first trans, out trans person to be on the cover of the magazine. And it was a gorgeous photo. You know, they shot her from below. So she's like really empowered. She's this defiant look on her face. She's wearing this gorgeous blue dress. And the headline said the transgender tipping point. It just gave me pause, right? I had so many feelings in that one moment of like, this is amazing that Laverne's getting this attention. I knew she was going to use her spotlight for good because I'd seen her in New York doing, you know, activist work for years. But the transgender tipping point, like talk about reductive, like what? What are you talking about? We've got one person that's being elevated and everyone else I know is still struggling to find safe housing and healthcare and employment protection. And at the same moment, I realized that suddenly if we're going to be having these mainstream conversations and non-trans people feeling good about themselves for knowing one trans person, this is going to put other trans people in danger. Right? We know that whenever a marginalized community gets mainstream attention, backlash ensues. So this paradox was just sort of flooding my everyday. And I was like, well, what, what's my part in this? As someone who's been making films about trans people, like, is visibility as important as I thought? And so just kind of what was the utility to visibility for marginalized communities? How does a social justice movement better prepare for that inevitable moment when the mainstream suddenly wants to commodify you? So I had all these questions and I quickly understood that I had to know what the history was, how we got to this particular point, you know, what was all the information that led to this point, And that was what I needed to understand in order to know where we were going to go from there and, and try to pivot it as much as I could. Because even though we've seen, you know, Laverne get attention and, and a bevy of other trans celebrities, the trans community is doing worse by the day, you know, they're stripping healthcare from trans kids debate around trans people in sports. I mean, it's, it's just obscene. I mean, I think most recently I saw something about groups are fighting for their right of speech to discriminate against trans people, right? Like, it's just, it's so deep. And even folks that feel like they're allies, right, that they have this implicit bias that they might not even be that aware of. And, like, and, and how do we shift those places? And I think part of what disclosure does is yes, we have these overt, very obvious transphobic examples in film and TV, and it allows people to kind of connect on how that left a mark on them and maybe influence them. But more so, I think seeing 31 trans people, you know, sharing that space with them, feeling this intimacy that only films can do, right? Feeling that connection, feeling like you know these people now a little bit. I think that's what shifts the needle of like, oh, you're just another person, right? And seeing that there is no monolith, there is no one way of being trans, I think that does some of the implicit bias work and, and, and starts to change things. And when you look at the history of trans representation, you see that all of these stories all point to the same thing. They're all saying we don't exist, that we're not real, we aren't who we say we are. And that's what dehumanizes us, that's what leads to violence. And I do believe that is a large part of the mythologies that are allowing these, you know, social discourses that question our rights to public space, right? That question our rights to healthcare. Yeah, you know, once you're dehumanized, violence follows, and 80% of Americans say they don't think they've ever met a trans person, that the only experience they've had with a trans person is through film and TV. So it felt really important to unpack that and look at that and revisit that as a collective together. We've made these mistakes. Now we've got disclosure to look at in a nice container and let's do better.
so that the 80% that only meets us through the screen, you know, understands that we're, we're human. I was on this show yesterday and the host um, afterwards, she was like, you know, I didn't ask you about Elliot Page, but I'm kind of, you know, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm kind of glad you didn't. Like, I, like, it's great and there's nothing to say really. And the host was like, yeah, I, uh, I realized that things had progressed because when I heard about it, she's speaking for herself, when I heard the news, I was just like, okay, cool. Like it wasn't a big deal. And she noticed that in herself. Those are the places that show that change has happened, right? That's where we know that there has been enough visibility, that people are having enough interaction, that something is shifting when it's not this big gasp. To find out more about Sam's film Disclosure, which is currently streaming on Netflix, and ways to get involved, go to www.disclosurethemovie.com. This podcast episode was recorded at the Newsstand Studio at One Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. Thank you for listening. For more, subscribe to Sundays at Cafe Tabac, the podcast. You can learn more about us and our film at cafetabacfilm.com and at Cafe Tabac Film on social media. Please share your thoughts with us on our social media. And if you have a coming out story you'd like to share for a possible feature here, reach out to us.